Hey everyone, Steve from Backcountry Gallery here. Thank you so much for trying out my podcasts. This is obviously podcast number one, the very first podcast. And I plan to do these podcasts sort of as time permits. I'm hoping to do maybe one or two a month, but with my hectic wildlife travel schedule, sometimes it's not possible. But I will do them whenever I can, and hopefully I can get you a couple of these every month. So I thought maybe the first thing we should do here in this brand new podcast is lay some of the groundwork so you kind of know what to expect in future podcasts as well. So the first thing you need to know is that these are going to be very wildlife centric simply because I'm a wildlife photographer. That's what I do for a living. And I also realize that many of the people who follow me online are also wildlife photographers as well, trying to learn new tips and techniques. So first ground rule is that we're mostly going to be talking about wildlife. However, keep in mind that a lot of the tips, tricks, techniques, and advice that I'm going to pass along in these podcasts also apply to lots of other genres of photography as well. So don't feel like it's strictly wildlife, even though I'm doing a lot of talking about wildlife in the podcasts. As for content, I think right now I'm going to start it off pretty simply, and then we'll kind of see what develops over time. I'm going to start off with some kind of a tip or opinion piece or something at the beginning of the podcast, and then after that, I'm going to jump into a Q&A. The Q&A, the source for that, most of the source for that anyway, is going to be the comments and questions that I receive via the contact form on my website. Each day I get all sorts of questions and people wondering about this, that, or the other thing, especially when it comes to wildlife photography. And the funny thing is a lot of times the questions kind of repeat themselves from person to person. So the reason I'm doing these podcasts is I thought, hey, instead of constantly just rehashing the same stuff to different people, why not share the information with the rest of the class, so to speak? So that way, when someone asks a question, if it seems like something that a lot of people are wondering about, I'm going to stick it in a podcast, and that way everybody can get the answer. So with all that in mind, I think it's time to go ahead and just dive right in. So I'm going to start with our very first tip, and that's shadows and ISO. Let's talk about that. Okay, so what exactly do I mean by shadows and ISO, and how can they sometimes become a problem for photographers, those two when they kind of combine and get together? And I think the best way to illustrate this is just with an example. Let's say you're out shooting some really cool animal, and you notice that maybe the light isn't as perfect as maybe we'd like. I mean, that never happens with wildlife photography, right? But the light's not quite as perfect as we'd like it to be, and we're going to have to do a little bit of a shadow pull when we get back to our computer. However, you're not overly concerned about it because although the light is a little bit dim, you're still at ISO 3200, and that doesn't seem like it's all that bad. You know with your full-frame camera you're going to be just fine. 3200 is completely manageable. So you go back to your computer, you plug in the memory card and you download the images and you start playing with it and you start pulling the shadows and maybe as it turns out you need a couple of stops worth of shadow pull to make this work to get the light levels in those shadows exactly where you want them however when you do so it completely ruins the image it gets really really noisy in those shadow areas and the image is basically unusable so what the heck happened you weren't really at an unreasonable iso were you you were just 3,200. Well, it's actually pretty simple. What's happening there is when you have to raise those shadows, every stop that you raise the shadow is like raising the ISO in those local areas by a stop itself. So if you're at, say, ISO 3,200, 
and you have to raise the shadows by two stops, it's going to make those shadow areas look like they were shot at 12,800. Pretty darn bad. And even if you only needed a single stop of shadow lifting, it's still going to look like 6,400, which is starting to get a little bit borderline on a lot of cameras for wildlife photography. So what's the answer then? Well, the best solution is actually the one you're probably thinking of right now, and that's to lower the ISO as much as possible. And as a rule, that's something I try to do anytime I'm faced with a situation where I know I'm gonna be pulling shadows. If I'm confident that I'm gonna do any kind of shadow pulling, I'm always asking myself, do I really need as much shutter speed as I'm using? Can I maybe use a tripod or find some other kind of support? Can I wait till the animal is a little bit more, I don't know, stationary and still before I photograph him? I realize that with wildlife photography, some of these things that I'm idealizing here, you know, don't necessarily happen. But the point is that you have to do your best to knock that ISO down as low as you can, because otherwise, when you go to pull the shadows, it's going to ruin the image anyway. All right, so let's try this scenario again, but this time we'll say we were able to drop two stops of shutter speed. Instead of being at ISO 3200, that means our original photos were shot at ISO 800. Now when we go back to Lightroom or whatever raw processor we use and then we go ahead and try to pull those shadows up instead of having like ISO 12,800 type noise levels in those shadows now we have more like ISO 3200 type noise levels in those shadows which is a little bit more manageable. So what's the bottom line? Actually really easy. Whenever you're in a situation where you think you're going to need to pull shadows, just keep the ISO as low as you possibly can for the best results. So that's the first quick tip there, and it was a very quick one, but you know we're just getting the ball rolling here. Next, let's jump into some Q&A. Okay, so our first question comes from Gary, and he is asking about used gear, specifically if I'm comfortable buying used gear, if I use it or not. Now, the thing is, I have purchased used gear in the past, and honestly, I've had kind of mixed results. So I tend to hesitate a little bit when buying used, especially since I'm relying on this stuff for my business. So personally speaking, for me, I do not buy used gear anymore. Very seldom do I buy used gear. However, if I were going to buy used gear, I would definitely make sure I was buying it from some place that had some sort of return policy. For example, Used Photo Pro allows you to return gear up to 180 days after purchase for most of their gear. Obviously not the stuff in fair or in operable condition, but the stuff that's in, you know, decent shape, they actually offer you six months to test it out and make sure it's good. KEH is another really reliable place to buy used gear from. I don't believe that they offer quite as long a guarantee, but you definitely have a couple weeks to check out the gear and make sure that it's okay. So bottom line, is if you're looking to buy used gear and it's not from an individual but instead from a company my advice is to check the return policy before you even start searching for the used gear and just make sure that you have some time to get the equipment in your hands and that you have time to test it out and make sure that it's working as expected okay our next question comes from wendy and wendy's asking about aspect ratios and honestly aspect ratios are sometimes kind of the bane of quite a few photographers out there they cause a ton of confusion i get questions about this on a very regular basis and i see it pop up on message boards from time to time too so 
let's talk about what aspect ratios are, the limitations, and kind of what we can do about it. So I'm going to start with Wendy's more or less specific question here. And basically the problem she's running into is that she has a Nikon D750, which is a 2 to 3 aspect ratio, or a 3 to 2, depending on how you want to think about it. And the issue is that she wants to make an 8x10 from that, and she finds she can do just fine with 4x6, but when she tries to make those 8x10s, she's forced to crop off the sides, and nobody wants to do that, right? So what's the answer here, or is there an answer? Now, there are a few things you can do, but none of them are going to be ideal. So let's start by examining the aspect ratio itself. See, the thing is, any print that you want to make and not do any cropping has to conform to the aspect ratio. There's no way around that. So, for example, we're working with a 3 to 2 aspect ratio. So let's take that and do some math with it. If we multiply 3 times 4, we get 12. And if we do 2 times 4, we get 8. So that basically gives us a 12 by 8. Not, unfortunately, the what... Wendy's looking for the 10 by 8 or the 8 by 10, again, depending on whether you're shooting vertical or horizontal. So what's the solution here? Is there any way around it? Now, the problem we're running into here is kind of trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. And one of the ways to think about this is just to take it to the extreme. For example, imagine instead of an 8 by 10 versus an 8 by 12, that you wanted to make a square image out of your 3 to 2 aspect ratio from your DSLR. Now, obviously, if you're going to try to do that, what do you have to do? You absolutely have to crop. You can picture that. Imagine you had an 8 by 10 print and you wanted to put that into a square frame. There's no way to force that to happen, is there? You absolutely would have to cut it. And the same applies when you're editing the pixels in Photoshop or Lightroom or whatever you're using. So then the big question becomes, what the heck can we do about problems like that? Well, you have a couple of options. The first is to think about those different ratios and shoot a little looser in the field if you know you're going to need something like an 8x10. So for example, if I knew for a fact that I was definitely going to want to make 8x10s from whatever subject I happen to be shooting, which honestly does not come up really often in wildlife photography, usually that's a decision I make after I get the photo. But if I knew for a fact that I was shooting something and I definitely wanted 8x10s, I could make sure that I left a little space on the left and right of the frame so that later on when I go to crop, I can actually make sure that I have the room to do it. The other option with a lot of cameras, depends on the model of course, is that some cameras offer crop modes that will give you 8x10 and square ratios and things like that. For example, my D850 absolutely has crop modes on it that allow me to shoot in an 8x10 ratio or even in a square ratio. So if I do want to go ahead and shoot nothing but 8x10s, I can go ahead and have that area that I don't need masked off and that won't be recorded by the sensor. And I can basically make my 2 to 3 ratio into a 4 to 5 or 8 by 10 ratio instead. So that can be really handy. Now the other option is simply to go ahead and embrace the idea that you have a 3 to 2 ratio and don't crop it at all. So that means just sticking with print sizes that actually work within that ratio. For example, with the 2 to 3 ratio we have with most DSLRs, we have things like 4 by 6, 8 by 12, 12 by 18, 16 by 24, and 20 by 30. So there are a lot of 
options out there as far as frames go. And I've seen all of these different sizes in frame shops. So it's definitely something that you can find and use. So it's not the end of the world. If you're shooting a DSLR, you don't necessarily have to go with 8x10. Instead, you can definitely find frames that will support that 3 to 2 ratio. Now, the other option is just to go ahead and crop however the heck you want. And then later on, just take it to a frame shop and let them do a custom framing job for you. And in a lot of cases, I have been known to do that. I feel like sometimes the world doesn't fit perfectly into the 3 to 2 ratio, and maybe it doesn't really pigeonhole into any of the other preset ratios either. So I'll just go ahead and crop it the way I want, and then if I decide to have it framed or use it later on, I can just go to the frame shop, give them the weird size print, and they'll make a custom frame for me. So the bottom line here is that, again, you're trying to put a round peg into a square hole, so you have to either embrace the ratio that you're working with, or go ahead and leave some room on the sides of the frame or top and bottom again, depending on whether you're shooting horizontally or vertically, but basically allow for a crop after the fact if you think you're gonna have to go ahead and do something other than the standard two to three ratio. However, what you don't wanna do is force the ratio. Now I realize there's a lot of image editing software out there that will allow you to take something that was shot in a two to three ratio and kinda of force it into an eight by 10 ratio or even a square ratio if you really want. But the problem is there's a really nasty side effect. It's gonna distort the image. It's gonna to have to squish everything down. And that's kind of the technical term for it is the word squish. It's gonna squish everything in and it's really gonna look goofy. And it's definitely not something you wanna to do to your images. So your best options are what we discussed previously, either shoot for those different ratios when you're out in the field or just kind of embrace the two to three ratio that we're using. Okay, our next question or some variation of our next question seems to come from like everybody. I get this question two or three times a week, maybe more, and basically it goes something like this. People are wondering if I still think that the Z cameras are a poor choice for wildlife photography. And the quick answer to that is yes I do. I am still not as impressed with them as I would like to be and I think for the money there are DSLR options that would serve you better for wildlife at the moment. However, I want to elaborate on that a little bit and tell you the specific issues that I have with the Z cameras and why I think specifically DSLRs right now, at least in the Nikon lineup, are a better choice. So let's start with autofocus. Now my major autofocus problem with the Z series cameras centers around AFC, autofocus continuous. The thing is, it's still not up to DSLR level. And I wish it were because it'd be great if it were, but it really isn't. I shoot stuff side by side with the Z cameras and the DSLRs. And when I'm talking about Z cameras, I'm talking Z6, Z7, and DSLRs like the D500, D850, and of course the D5. And when you put them side by side, heck, even the D7500 is oftentimes a little bit better than the Z series camera when it's in bad light or low light or low contrast or of course when you're dealing with something that's moving. So let's kind of tackle those a little bit. The first thing is that it can struggle in low light, low contrast situations. And I know that's kind of strange because Nikon actually released a firmware update that allows the Z series cameras to go to like minus four EV, which is you know pretty darn good, pretty darn dark. But you know, when I'm using the DSLRs right next to them, the DSLRs still seem like they do a better job. Now. Now the other place 
the Z cameras really seem to struggle is with action. They just don't seem to like latch onto the subject as well as a DSLR, and they don't seem to stick with it despite all the different tracking settings that I've messed with and adjusted and played with. They just don't do as good a job with either initial acquisition or with maintaining that lock once they get it. Now there are exceptions of course, for example, if you have a subject like a bird in flight for instance, and you're shooting like wide area AF, auto area AF, and that bird is up against like a blue sky, the camera actually does pretty well. The Z cameras actually seem to be able to track that because there's not much to distract them in that scenario. Where I struggle with them and I find other people are struggling is when you have an interesting background. I don't know about you, but I'm not much of a bird against a blue sky fan. I mean, sometimes I'll do it, but most of the time, it's not a very interesting photo. I like to have stuff behind them, you know, blurred out vegetation and things like that. Stuff that kind of looks pretty, you know. And one of the problems is the Z camera apparently likes that stuff too because it tries to focus on that background as often as it can. And it gets very frustrating to try to keep the camera on the subject. Even if you keep the camera on the subject, in a lot of cases, it'll jump to the background at some point and you have to try to reacquire. And if you've done any bird photography, you know that once that lock is gone, reacquiring is usually a lost cause. So that can be kind of a problem too. So I think one of the major issues there is that the Z cameras don't really have any kind of close focus priority built into them. They kind of look for contrast, it seems like anyway, and when they see that contrast, they go for it, regardless of whether there's something that's actually closer to the camera that we might want, like, you know, that flying bird instead. So there's a lot of situations here where it's just not as good as we want it to be for our action subjects. However, it is still fine in a lot of cases for static subjects. So, you know, if I'm doing an animal that's not really moving around too much, a lot of times I can use the Z cameras with a good deal of success. However, as soon as an animal starts moving, I wanna be able to track it and take care of that shot and grab that shot. And so many times the Z cameras just aren't getting it to the same level that the DSLRs do. My keeper rate just isn't as good. So that's something to think about there. Now, one other thing that's kind of a little annoyance with me, it hasn't proven to be like terribly bad, but it's something I really miss, is that there are no assignable buttons for AF areas like we have with our higher end DSLRs. So on the D500, the D850, and the D5, we can do things like assign function and PV buttons for jobs like press this button and I want you to switch to single point AF, or I want you to switch to group AF or things like that. And the Z cameras don't allow you to do that at this time and honestly that's something that people have complained about since day one and it seems like it's kind of a firmware update but Nikon has not bothered to give us what we asked for there so that's kind of a I don't know not a good sign I guess now one note here that I want to throw out I've kind of beat up the autofocus system here a little bit and I can hear the comments already well this pro or that pro is using it and they seem to be happy with it and they seem to be getting good results and the truth is, you have to be very careful with that because one thing that nobody talks about when they're talking about these professional reviews is that the people who are doing it in a lot of cases are professional photographers with a ton of action experience under their belts. And one thing I found to be very true with the Z cameras is that if you have a lot of action experience, you're very good 
maybe even subconsciously, at sort of compensating for some of the deficiencies in the autofocus system, and you tend to get a little bit better results than the typical shooter does. In fact, it's a little bit ironic when you think about it, because in a lot of cases, people say, well, the Z cameras are fine if you're not doing a lot of action and you only do it occasionally. The problem is, if you're a very occasional action shooter, your skill set probably isn't up to the same level as someone who does it all the time. So you're gonna have a much, much more difficult time getting great action shots with a Z camera than the person whose skill set is way, way up there and they do it all the time. However, that person is probably gonna prefer a DSLR because they're getting a higher keeper rate than they can with the autofocus system from the Z series cameras. And the reason I bring this up is I've seen this firsthand. When I'm out shooting with my wife, who just started doing wildlife photography about a year and a half ago, and she's using a Z camera and I'm using a Z camera, we're both taking pictures, my keeper rate is far, far higher, and I'm actually getting great action shots up against tricky backgrounds and things like that. But she can't get anything, and she gets very frustrated. In fact, what's one of the reasons she has switched over to Sony, because the autofocus system is much easier to work with. But... The bottom line is that as an experienced wildlife shooter, I'm able to kind of compensate for the camera's autofocus deficiencies as I'm shooting, and I'm able to track a little better, and I'm able to keep the autofocus point where I want it and things like that, whereas she doesn't have that level of experience, and it's very, very frustrating. And I've seen other people get very frustrated who are not super experienced with action photography try to do action with these Z cameras, and they're definitely better off with DSLRs at this point, at least in the Nikon arena. Now, autofocus isn't the only complaint I have with the Z cameras. Number two is the buffer. The Z6 and Z7, the buffer is just a little bit on the small side, and that can cause you problems if you're in an extended action sequence. For example, maybe you have a nice bird coming in, he's flying up against the wind, so he's coming in nice and slow, but as you're shooting, the buffer fills up, and those great landing shots, the ones that we really want with a wing spread out, you miss those because the buffer's going chug, chug, chug. Now, the good news is it sounds like the Z50 does have a little bit better buffer, at least the initial reports I've seen. I have not actually handled one and used one yet, though. So for me, the jury's out, but I guess it does seem to have a little bit better buffer. So, I, you know, things are heading the right way. But still, when we're talking about the Z6 and the Z7, that buffer is still a little bit small for a lot of our purposes out there as wildlife photographers. Number three on my hit list is the frame rate. It's too darn slow in my opinion. We're looking at 5.5 frames per second on the Z6 and 7, and five frames per second on the Z50 in the normal high speed frame rate. However, I realize those cameras do have the extended frame rate option that brings them to either nine or 11 frames per second, depending on the camera. But the problem is when it does that, it does a slideshow effect in the viewfinder. You no longer have the live feed coming in to the viewfinder and it kind of kills the whole thing. And I'm gonna give you an example. Last spring when I was in the Serengeti, we had a nice little lion cub coming down a slopey rock. And I thought, oh, that's gonna be a cute shot. I had the Z7, I was at nine frames a second in the extended mode, and I went ahead and I focused on his face. I had my AF point right squarely on his little face. He came down the slope, and I looked at the images, and I had a bunch of images with tack, sharp, shoulders. <laughs> Not face, but shoulders. And the reason is because when you're looking at what just happened in the viewfinder via the slideshow, you can't see what's actually going on in the viewfinder. You just know what you just did. And 
the issue there is that everything's a little bit laggy, everything's a little bit behind. And had I put the autofocus point right out in front of his face, maybe I would have had sharp faces the entire time, but that is probably the least intuitive thing I can possibly think of. So again, the frame rate for me, I like to keep it at that normal 5.5 frames a second so that I actually have a shot at actually, you know, tracking and sticking with the subject in there when I'm on my high speed continuous shooting. So again, this is something that Nikon definitely needs to improve because any of the DSLRs we're talking about even the D7500, they all have faster frame rates. And they're real frame rates. We can actually see the live feed through the optical viewfinder. So we don't have any of that slideshow effect. So again, this is another place where in Nikon, the DSLRs are definitely beating the mirrorless cameras. Now, number four on my hit list is the lack of a real vertical grip. Now, I know that some people think that's not a big deal, but as a wildlife photographer, I'm often in a situation where I'm shooting a vertical shot and I'm kind of waiting for an animal to either look my way or do something. And when you're holding the camera without the vertical grip, it gets very uncomfortable, especially with a long telephoto lens. And pretty soon you start to fatigue and you end up taking the camera down. Then of course, at that point, the animal looks up or does whatever you were waiting for. So the lack of a vertical grip is kind of a killer for me. I really don't like that at all. You know, and the other nice thing, if we had a real vertical grip, we'd not only get that extra battery life for longer shoots or cold weather shooting, but the additional weight would be nice to help balance out some of that longer glass that we use as wildlife photographers. But it just kills me to spend 200 bucks on a vertical grip that does not actually have a shutter release built into it. That's crazy. So I'm not going to end up purchasing something like that. So my bottom line with the Z cameras versus DSLRs, my recommendation still stands that if you're a wildlife photographer, especially one that likes to do both regular subjects and the occasional action shot, I still think in the Nikon world that the DSLRs are a better choice. Now, hopefully I can change that recommendation here within the next year or two. But for right now, I think the best choice for most wildlife photographers is to stick with the DSLRs, particularly things like the D850 and the D500, great little cameras. And I would definitely use them over the mirrorless any day for normal wildlife photography shooting. However, and just to be clear, this doesn't mean that it's like totally impossible to get great wildlife shots with a Z-series camera. You absolutely can do it. I've done it myself and I have some shots I really, really like from those cameras. However, part of me kind of feels like I can also pound in a nail with a wrench when maybe a hammer is a little bit better choice most of the time. And I kind of think that's where we are in Nikon land at least with our Z-series mirrorless cameras versus the DSLRs at least for wildlife photographers. Now, if you absolutely wanna do mirrorless wildlife photography right now today, my recommendation would be to actually look at Sony a little bit. I have an A7R4 and an A9 Mark II, and I have used them a little bit. I haven't used them a ton, but even my initial impressions as far as a performance standpoint go, is that they are far and above what we can do with our Nikon mirrorless at the moment. The A9 Mark II, for example, is 20 frames per second. It can hold, I think, 300 and some shots in the buffer, which is incredible. Plenty of space, actually. And the autofocus is absolutely exceptional, and you can get a real vertical grip for it. It has everything that I'm basically complaining about with the Nikon, you can actually get in the Sony. And the same stuff kind of goes for the A7R4. Although it doesn't quite match the high performance specs of the A9 Mark II, it still has 10 frames a second, a very adequate buffer, fantastic 
autofocus, and of course you can put a vertical grip on it as well. Either camera is a very capable wildlife camera, and with the new lenses Sony has out, if you have a big budget, you have a 400-2.8 and a 600-F4, but they also have that really nice 200-600 and 100-400, and those last two lenses, I own them both, and they're both really nice lenses. They get you really nice sharp shots, very happy with both of them. So. That's something to think about too. However, if you're heavily invested in Nikon, my advice is just to wait. Or maybe get one of the Z cameras and you can use it a little bit as kind of a backup or, you know, part-time camera for more static subjects and you can play with it because they do work well for that. However, if you're trying to figure out where to spend your money right now for a new camera for your wildlife photography, or if you're debating whether you should maybe trade your D850 for like a Z7 or something, I definitely would not recommend doing that. I would hold tight to your DSLRs for right now, and we'll all keep our fingers crossed that Nikon will come up with something that we actually can use within the next year or two. Okay, so I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up our very first podcast here. We're almost a half an hour into this thing. I was going for 20 minutes, and I think this is probably going to be pretty darn typical for what happens most weeks. So anyhow, I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, make sure you stop by my website and check out my ebook, Secrets to the Nikon Autofocus System, Secrets to Exposure and Metering for Nikon, and of course, Secrets to Stunning Wildlife Photography. They're all jam-packed with tons of tips, tricks, and information. If you do have a question that you would like to maybe hear answered on the podcast, hit me up via the contact form over at the site. And Maybe I'll grab your question and put it up here on the podcast. Keep in mind that I get tons and tons of questions and I just can't answer them all though. And finally, while you're at the site, make sure you sign up for that free email newsletter so you never miss one of these podcasts, one of my videos, or one of my blog posts. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.